So we are in our, our series entitled Unfinished, as we are going through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 2 today. And uh, it's interesting that um, I was going through this passage, it's amazing how God does things, and I was trying to think of, you know, the overall theme of how this is, passage is brought together and what God is doing in this passage. And the, the, the phrase, or the unofficial motto of America came into my head. Did anyone know what the unofficial motto of America is? Anybody? Come on, Americans. What is it? That's actually the official motto of America, is in God we trust. What's the unofficial motto? It's Latin. It's actually 13 letters long. Yeah, e pluribus unum, right? And you guys all knew that, right? Right, e pluribus unum. Now, let me, bonus points. What does that mean? Out of the many, one. Out of the many, one. And it's interesting that it's 13 letters long, and it was originally because of the 13 colonies. Out of the many colonies comes one country. And it's interesting, we have 13 verses today. Out of these 13 verses comes one body, one church, one people group from all different tribes and tongues, and it's God's vision for the world. And what he's creating here is this fellowship, Fellowship of the Holy Spirit, meaning, as I said before, we've, we've seen that the title of this book is called Acts of the Apostles. But a better title is Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit is the primary character within the entirety of this book of Acts. And it's something, he is something that many of those within the church, there's a great deal of confusion on. As I've said kind of often in jest, that when we talk about God being Father Son, and Holy Spirit. We sang about that earlier today. We have people that are from a, what we call a high church tradition where there's a lot of Jesus size going on in the service. Where it's standing, sitting, standing, sitting, do this, do that, standing, sitting, right? And there's a lot of uh, reciting of different things. And they, they really talk a lot about the Father. But then you have those who really talk about Jesus, and usually those are from your more of a Baptist or Baptistic background, um, and then you have over here those who come more from a Pentecostal background talk a great deal about the Holy Spirit of God. And, and w- different groups have a tendency to focus on a different person of the triune God. But God says that we're to have all three engaged in our Christian life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we said before, we in our modern church today really don't have a good grasp of who or how God is triune and what that affects on our lives. And, and we're, today we've talked, I mean, in the past we've talked a lot about Jesus. We've actually talked a great deal about the Father. But the next several um, weeks and even months, we're going to be talking more about the person of the Holy Spirit. And we learned that he is not an it, but he is a he. He is, he is a person of the Godhead, and he has uh, a specific function for the church. And we see his arrival, and just as we read or heard within the scriptures that were being read today during our, our singing set, where they were talking about how Jesus had to go in the ascension in order for the Spirit to come and dwell among his people. But what does that mean? What does it mean that the Spirit of God comes into our lives What does that mean that God has all of these different people with these funny-to-pronounce locations? Why is that included in there? And how does that have to do with my everyday life? I mean, how does that affect how I go about my job or about my marriage or the problems that I'm facing 
And we're going to see how the Holy Spirit and what God has done is actually applicable to every single sphere of our lives. Because the Holy Spirit coming into our lives seeks to change us and transform us into Christ's likeness. That God gives us something that we didn't have before, that we need in order to be and live like Jesus. So today we're going to jump right into this text to see this fellowship of the Spirit that God brings together from all of our different backgrounds, out of the many of who we are, and we're all many, we all have our different desires, we all have our different uh, groups that we hang with, or people that we, things that we enjoy, or hobbies that we have, or language that we speak, or backgrounds we come from, or teams we, we root for, but this fellowship is stronger than any other bond that we could possibly come up with. That it's a fellowship of the Spirit of God, and not one that's temporal, but one that is eternal and will last into eternity. So let's take a moment to pray and ask God, by His Holy Spirit, to speak to us. To open our hearts to His Word, which is living and active, which is God-breathed. Which really, the word for God-breathed, by the way, is a Greek word called theopnoestos. Literally, God breathed it out. It's alive. Just like as God breathed into the breath of life into Adam, he breathed life into this book, that this book might also speak life into our lives as well. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God to be in our message time today. Oh Lord our God, we humble ourselves before you. Knowing that you are God, we are not. That you are holy. And in our flesh, we are not. You know our, the depth of our rebellion. You know our stri- strivings and our struggles. You know our sins. And Lord, we don't dare to come into your presence of any righteousness of our own, for we have none. But we come boldly, nevertheless, because of what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, today we come to seek to understand who you are in a greater way and how we are to live and what your Spirit is for us and how we are to live in the Spirit and what this this episode that we read about in the early church and why it occurred and how it, how it affects us in our day. So Lord, please be with us, bless us, and draw us unto yourself that we might go forth changed, having met with the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump into our text. And, and before we really get into this text, I want to lay a bit of a background, a baseline in order to really grasp what's going on here. And this is where it's good to understand what was going on in the ancient world. Uh, because until we understand the environment in which the scriptures were written, we don't get the full flavor of what's occurring here. It's like, for example, let me give you just an illustration of that. It's like coming to the United States last, or, or in, uh, let's say, September of 2016, and everybody's going crazy over the Chicago Cubs. And you're like, whatever. Doesn't mean anything to you. Because you didn't go through all the history. You don't know of all the ups and downs. You don't know of everything that was in the background of it. You don't understand the jubilation on people's faces because you don't understand all of the sorrow that they'd gone through for so many years. And so here, in order to understand the backdrop of what's going on in the book of Acts, we have to understand how the ancient world really perceived God and his interaction with the world. And the first thing that we would understand is that there wasn't just one God in the understanding of the ancient world. 
Matter of fact, this is, uh, there, there is a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Some of you went to your high school English class, and you learned about names that you'd rather forget, Jupiter and Apollo and Aphrodite and Hermes. Remember all these from your high school English class? And you're like, okay, why do I ever need to know this? I was going through that with my daughter just recently as we're going through her high school, and she's like, what are all these names? Why does it matter? And, I, and of course, me, I was geeking out. And I'm like, hey, honey, this is really important if you want to understand the New Testament. She's like, oh, God, please help me. Because I, I really was excited about this. Because when you really get into it, you have to understand how these people understood God's interaction with the ancient world. And, and this, in our world today, it seems like it's so far away. But if we were to go outside of the borders of the United States or go next door to someone who's from a different culture, you would find that this mindset of the gods and goddesses is actually very alive. If you go to India, there is a pantheon of gods and goddesses today. 335 million of them in Hinduism. So this is mindset. It just has different names that are much longer than Aphrodite and Zeus and all of these different names that are there. That you see it within that mindset. And it was in Egypt with their pantheon of gods and goddesses, such as Osiris or Isis. And you had Ra. And you had, I mean, you had all of these different characters. And you have the Greek and Roman pantheons and the Mesopotamian and the Philistines. And so they all, each culture had their own gods and goddesses. And these deities were divided up. These deities were divided up depending upon where they ruled and reigned. And sometimes it was a local geographic god, meaning that they were the god of this land, like this border, they ruled that area. Or they were the god of the hills, or the god of the plains, or the god of the oceans, just like the other gods in the pantheon of gods. Or they ruled over certain things in life, like childbirth, or the harvest, or sexuality, or uh, entertainment, or children. They had different gods that ruled different arenas of life. But when the God of the New Testament comes on this scene, he is entirely and completely different than the gods of the ancient world. So much so that when one of the Roman emperors, after they had conquered Jerusalem and got into the Jewish temple, he, he hypothesized or theorized that the Jews were actually atheists because they had no idol in there because it was the spirit of God coming in not inhabiting a like an object I mean he had a place that he was there for which was the Jewish temple so God shows up in the ancient uh, ancient civilization into this Jewish temple that Solomon if you remember if you're familiar at all with the biblical story King David who was a ruler in Israel had a desire to build a temple for God And God says, it's not going to be you, it's going to be your son Solomon. And Solomon shows up and builds this huge grand temple, which, by the way, is still the most controversial and disputed area on the face of the earth. If you want to go to Israel, go to the Temple Mount, which now has the Al-Asqua Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, because it's under uh, Muslim control, but the wall that's closest to it that Jews possess, called the Wailing or Western Wall, is the closest area that they grab a hold to, which is closest to the Jewish temple. So this is the most disputed area in the entire world. And I mean this, that wars break out over this one little area that God designated to be the place where he would dwell. Now, what was the purpose of this Jewish temple? And it's fascinating. King Solomon, when he is dedicating the temple to the glory of God, and this was an awesome, beautiful temple, by the way. I mean, gorgeous It was awe-inspiring. But he had a prayer and what this temple would be. That it would be a place where God's name would dwell. And this is all in 1 Kings chapter 8. Where God's people could come and pray. 
And we think, okay, what's the big deal? Remember, there was not just one God in many of their minds, or this God was so far away they couldn't approach him. But here God is saying, I am condescending to man. I am going to dwell in a certain place so that all people could come and actually seek and interact with me. I'm making myself available to you. And so it's that all people could come and pray. And they could receive judgments about different life situations they were going through. But primarily, it was a meeting place between God and men. And for prayer especially. And Solomon prophetically prayed that there would be a place where people could pray for forgiveness. Or if the nation of Israel had lost a battle for something, they could go to there and ask God to intercede. Or if a drought had come upon the land, that's where they were to meet with God and do business. And then God would send rain. So it's a fascinating thing. He even says even the foreigners could come. That to non-Jew could come in, in search of the name of the one true God. And God himself would hear so that, and as it says in 1 Kings 8, 43, that all the peoples of this earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now, that's important because it serves as a backdrop for what we're seeing here. And, and it's going to show how it's going to play into the different spheres of our lives. Because what we have here in our text is that these, these believers are gathered together in one place. We don't know exactly where it was. It was supposedly close to the Jewish temple where about 120 people could fill the room. And they had been waiting because Jesus had told them to wait. Told them to wait. And it's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And they're waiting when a, the something like a wind comes in. And then these tongues of fire come and are above them and come onto each person, giving them utterance to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. It's a crazy picture. Now, why is that important? How does that relate to the Jewish temple? Well, you have to understand, first of all, this fire and what it represented. Fire throughout the Scripture always, or most of the time, represents God, either in His presence or His judgment. To give you an example... In Exodus chapter 3, if you've ever seen any of the the Ten Commandments or watched any movie with Moses in it, he goes to meet with God in front of the what? Burning bush. The burning bush. Or the the nation of Israel, when they were were going out of Egypt, they were guarded. They had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Mount Sinai, when God was meeting with Moses, and there was this great fire that was on the top of it. Or looking at the book of 1 Kings, when uh, Elijah prays that um, he's doing business or battle with the prophets of Baal, and he offers the sacrifice, pours all this water so it's overflowing it, and God answers by fire. It's this present, that God's presence, because God is a consuming fire. So now... This presence of, this picture of the presence of God, which was in the Jewish temple, by the way, where you had the menorahs and you had this ever burning, since, like God's presence was there to symbolize it. And now these tongues of fire come upon them, which is showing that God now is not dealing or, or going to be dwelling in one certain geographical location, but in God's people. So here's the first point I want you to write down. Acts chapter 2 teaches us that God is now residing in believers. He is living in those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. 
The scripture says that those, as soon as you believe in Jesus, the Spirit of God enters you. This is the kickoff. This is the, the, I mean, the real way that God is showing it. This isn't how he's to do it for all time. But it's showing that God now is residing in believers. And Luke, remember Luke wrote this book, had talked about something similar in the book of Luke with the baptism of Jesus. Sometimes this is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Where at the baptism of Jesus, after Jesus was baptized, it says, and Luke only records this, that, that the voice of God came out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And a dove came down to show that God's presence was with Jesus. And now we have a similar thing where God is saying, my presence is with his people. That's why when we talk about church, we really use that terminology incorrectly. We look at it as a building. It's not a building. It's a people. You know, it's us, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We are God's church, and now his presence is with us. And you have to understand how radical this is. I mean, to the ancient world, and even to our mindset today, God is in you. God seeks to become and put himself in you to help you be the people that he wants us to be, to be like Jesus. So God is placing his spirit within each one of us. And we really see this picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Now Paul is writing this, and he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple? Now, he's speaking, by the way, just pause here for a moment, in talking about sexual immorality. And he's saying that well, those who unite with a prostitute become one in spirit with her. And that's why it talks about when two are at the marriage altar, that they become one, that there is a mingling of souls, of flesh. So sexually, sexually, there is a mingling of souls. And he's saying that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. He's rebuking them because they're sleeping around. He says, you're not supposed to do that. You don't understand the spiritual implications of the physical act that you're doing. We have regulated and put sexuality down to just this physical interaction and don't understand the spiritual nature of it. And he's writing this, and he's saying, you're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify it with your God with your body, meaning don't be united in that way. Don't, because you have been bought with a price, that God's spirit, you are now that temple. You are the temple. You're not that physical temple that was there. That temple is obsolete. You are the meeting place that God wants to have. He wants to be in you and interact with you, and he's offering himself to you in this amazing interaction. It's phenomenal when you think about it. Not God dwelling in some geographic location. Not God just dwelling in different spheres of life. That God now comes to meet with you. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Now, some of you are like, oh, this, I don't feel that. Why am I struggling? Why am I convicted? Why? I, I mean, we, we forget of the power that God gives us by his spirit. See, this is the next thing I want us to write down. His Spirit gives us power. Power. We need power to live. Okay, this isn't some crazy power. This is, uh, I mean, this is a power to help live the life that Christ lived. This isn't trying to, a power that's going to make you levitate or do any of this crazy stuff, but it's helping you find freedom from sin, say no to sin, and live the life that God wants you to do. 
Because Jesus knew and understood that we couldn't do the mission that he has for us. Which remember, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, was to be his witnesses, to testify to him, to all the different spheres of the world, which means different cultures, different races, different backgrounds. And not just testifying by our words, but by our lives that we have been freed from our sin and that Christ is Lord over every single sphere of our lives. See, we often think about being witnesses. It's just this verbal, you know, get a person to pray the prayer. But that's not it. It's testifying and showing the truth of Christ by our words and our lives that he is God. And he gives us a power to be able to do that. This is a a power that is phenomenal. And it's the power that was actually at work in Jesus when he was raised from the dead. One of the most fantastic chapters, and if you really want to memorize an amazing chapter of Scripture, Romans 8. Romans 8 is a phenomenal chapter. Actually, uh, we were at a funeral yesterday, a memorial service for uh, Scott Cap that many of you might be familiar with, and that was the main focus passage. And I thought it was such an amazing passage because Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, okay, this is the Holy Spirit He's talking about, dwells in you, lives in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Meaning he's going to bring about the life of Christ that as he was raised from the dead, which is a phenomenal power, okay, none of us can raise anybody from the dead on our own. I remember being at a funeral uh, several years ago where someone had died and uh, people were broken because of the age of the person that had died. And uh, a woman came over to me and she's got tears in her eyes and she's like, can't we raise them from the dead? Can't we just do that right now? No, man is destined to die once and then face judgment. God does that of his own sovereignty. But we have to let them go. And and we don't have that ability. I don't have that power to raise the dead. I don't. But God does. And that same spirit, though, that raised Jesus from the dead seeks to give life to your body. See, this is why we have a very poor understanding of sin and the power of God. In our contemporary culture today, people want to make themselves uh, not morally culpable for their actions. They have a disease, they have a disorder, and there are those, okay? I don't want to denigrate that. But we remove moral responsibility, meaning that we don't have that power. If Christ is in you, you have that power to say no to sin. You're not a slave to it any longer. You're like, well, that's my natural tendency. I have a natural tendency to look at porn or to, to be involved in this same-sex relationship or, or in this, this uh, illicit relationship with this person or to steal or to lie or this addictive personality. God's Spirit says that you are to put to death that. And if that same Spirit is in you, you can say no to that sin. See, we have to understand how bad we were before God. That we weren't just bad. We were dead We needed our own resurrection, which only could take place when Christ's Spirit came in you. So when we get people to just pray the prayer, and we just think, we we almost think that we lead lead them into the back door of God's kingdom. It's like they didn't really know that they were praying the prayer, but if we get them to pray the prayer, they're in, and they didn't know it. And it's like they're trapped in the building, and they can't get out. That's not it at all. It's to say that a person was dead in their sins and transgressions until through the proclamation of his word, through its, because it's through the foolishness of preaching that those who are transformed 
as God's word goes out and cuts people to the core and shows them by the Spirit of God that they are lost and dead in their sin and only that God can save them and regenerate them to make them new. And until that happens, then they're not saved. Because God has to transform. The Spirit of God has to come upon them to convict them of sin, to regenerate them to believe. And there's this power that comes upon us, and that transforms us. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Great verse. I love this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, I, I'm sure if I asked for people to testify, you'd say, I'd say, are you a new creation? You'd say, yes. I'm not who I was. I've been changed from the inside out. Hopefully, we can all say that. We all have to become new creations. We're, we're, we're different than we were before. I know when I came to know Jesus, my, my conversion was pretty dramatic. I'd grown up in church, but there was something that changed within me. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't want to do those sins anymore, but I felt a greater war within me, and it's such a conviction that God wouldn't let me rest. And I remember talking with my best friend growing up, and we're talking about our high school and years had passed, and, and I said, man, we go back, everybody looks different. He goes, nobody more different than you. I said, what do you mean? He goes, God transformed you in a way that I can't even begin to understand. And see, I hope that's the same for each one of us. And, I, and I've seen that transformation happen in his life too, by the way, because he came to be a believer in Jesus. And he was raised in a pastor's home. But God transformed him. Has God transformed you? That's what we read, in, again, in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, or there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, has set you free in Christ. Jesus, from the law of sin and death, that you don't have to do that sin any longer, and death will not come upon you in the same way as it will an unbeliever. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning Jesus came to identify with us, that's what his baptism was about, by the way, is how far he was going to identify with us. Weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that he can beat it, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the what? Spirit. And I know I'm dropping some heavy things on us. Okay, I'm giving some really heavy truths here, but this is one that we really desperately need to understand and comprehend. He goes on. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But for those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's not playing around. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. This is where I go back to. You cannot come to really know Jesus just because you want to. Only unless God's Spirit convicts you and draws you into Himself. That's how bad we are. We've made it that God is just waiting for us. Please come back like an ex-girlfriend. Like, please come back. I really care for you. Don't you know? That's not how God is. Not at all. Now, He wants us to come back, but not because of this like, oh, I'm so helpless without you. It's like you have no idea what you're giving up. And man is incapable of coming to Him. As Jesus said, no one comes to the, the Father or to the Son, lest the, the Spirit draws him. The Spirit has to draw you. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He goes on. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, 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 conditional word. I always pick, when I, when I write this in the scripture, I write this little, little kind of lines underneath it. It's called, a con, it's a conditional word, meaning that this will happen if you do this action. He's saying here, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you have the Spirit of God? Let me ask you this next question. How do you know you have the Spirit of God? How do you know? Now, we're going to get into this a little bit today, but more in the weeks to come. Uh, When I was new to the faith, um, I went to a Christian college, didn't know anything, encountered a guy who really seemed to love God. He had a Bible study out of his room. He went knocking on doors every single Sunday, went to, to invite people to church. He would come again in the afternoon, invite people to night church. He had prayer meetings going on. He was just this amazing, dynamic guy. We got into these Bible studies together, and he told me that if I didn't speak in tongues, that I wasn't saved. Now, is that what he's saying, that if I have the Spirit of God, I'm going to speak in tongues? No, it's not it at all. Now, you're going to encounter that, by the way, People that say you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, but that's not what this passage is teaching at all. Matter of fact, this is a one-time act, which is talking about the, the fellowship of what God is doing and how he is now coming into men, and it's exhibited in these different tongues, which is actually different than the tongues that we're going to look at uh, later on, hopefully. Uh, but we see here that God is showing up in his dwelling with men, and he's giving us a power to live by, because those in the flesh cannot cannot please God. He gives us his power, and he is the one who produces change in us. He produces change in us. And this is how you know you have the Spirit of God. If people say, oh, I'm saved, I prayed this prayer, and there's never any change in your life, I'd say God's Spirit really isn't in you. I I would say that. I would go so far to say, where is your fruit? Where is that in your life? If there's really no fruit in your life, I really don't think that you really know who Jesus is. Because if you know who Jesus is, there will be a change in you. There will be a change. If there is no change, then I really have a hard time biblically seeing that God is in you. Because if you are a child of God, you're not going to want to continue on in those sins. You'll be so convicted that you want to be made right with God and not continue on in it. And people are like, oh, I'm saved. I've got the express train to heaven. I got the eye pass to glory right here. Woo. I'm in. And there's never any change? I'd say, really, where's, is God really in your life? It, he's the one who produces change. Paul talks about this. In, 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 I love this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul's correcting this very worldly mindset of the church at Corinth. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by what? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Meaning that God was changing you from the inside out. That's how, he says, I love that part. So were some of you. That's how you were, but God changed you. He washed you. He sanctified you, which means he's making you more holy. He's transforming you from the inside out. 
Now, there are some that are here today that think you are going to glory, but there is no showing of God's presence in your life. And the greatest deception is self-deception. And we have the world trying to get us to be so many different things, and the devil using the, the, the words of our society and the news to totally bring us down and, and think that everybody's doing whatever action is, and then we turn our back and we don't really see God's work in our lives because we're not surrendering to him. And we have to ask God to really show himself in our lives because he's the one that's producing change. He's the one that convicts us of our sin. He's the one that's making us more like Jesus, not us. He's doing it. And we, we then uh, connect with him. We submit to his leading and his conviction in our life. Even if it's humiliating, whatever we need to do in order to be right with God, we'll do it. My mentor, fascinating man, he's with Jesus now. He, uh, he walked me through the scriptures he would meet with me every week on a Tuesday, and we'd just go through the Word of God together, show me how to be a disciple of Jesus. And one of the things he talked about was a condition of prayer, that there are conditions laid out within his Word when we pray, that we have to meet, that if we don't meet, then God's not going to meet our prayers. Uh, one of those was is that we have to make restitution, we have to make confession of sin, we can't hold on to it in our heart. The Psalm sixty six eighteen: if I cherish sin in my heart or iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayer. So why would God want to willingly answer our prayer when we're willingly holding on to that which he gave his son to die for? Why would he do that? Like, oh, I want your answer, God, but I'm not going to give up this part of my life. Why would we do that? And he was sharing that with me, and, and as he was speaking to me that I had to make restitution, I need to make confession of sin, the Holy Spirit started pricking my heart about some stuff that I had done that I need to go back and face the music that I wanted to forget. You ever had that happen? Things in your life where you knew that God is telling you, you got to go fix this. you got to go back and face that situation. you got to deal with that person, deal with that situation. And if you don't, that's going to hurt. And, and, and God will withdraw, begin to withdraw his presence. It's the dimmer effect, that if you disobey, he starts dimming the light. But if you obey, he starts bringing the light back on. So we have to make sure and understand that the Spirit is the one who's producing change but God gives us his power, but we must cultivate the Spirit's presence in our lives. His presence in our lives. We read this in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are God's debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. In other words, that he's showing his presence in our lives by this conviction that we are a part of his family, but as part of his family, he will discipline us, and he will bring these things to attention so that we might repent of them and turn away from them. So he shows his presence in our lives. Now, another thing that this moment in Acts 2 brings out is a unification of languages rather than a division between them that God had brought about in Genesis 11. If you're not familiar with Genesis 11, let me just set the stage rather quickly. All the peoples of the earth had come together at that time, and they were building this massive tower and trying to create a name apart from God. God saw this, saw their desire to accomplish happiness apart from him, and he can't do that. He can't let that occur. 
And so he divides them in the different languages so that they cannot work together, and then they disperse over the face of the earth. So what's going on here, though, is God reversing Babel. That's the second point within your notes. He's reversing Babel. He's turning something around. He's reversing the curse, if you will. He's bringing about, one had been, once had been divided because of man's rebellion. God is bringing back and he's redoing something within humanity that has not been seen before. He's turning around. Rather than being divided anymore, he would allow them to come together as one. And let's look at the text in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? Now notice we have 120 speaking in tongues. And it was such a loud sound that Jews heard them from the outside. The text says that they were devout men from every nation under heaven. But at this sound, they came together and were bewildered at what they were hearing. But I want to draw attention to something here in verse 7, where they ask the question, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And it's striking because Galileans were considered the uneducated and unsophisticated. It was a backwoods area, and they pronounced words funny. But here they were speaking in tongues of the nations perfectly. Now, why does God do that? And what does God, why does God use them? Because God's showing that he's using the ordinary to do something extraordinary. That God uses the ordinary to do something extraordinary. God's always been about using ordinary people like you and me, people that don't always have the great education or speak perfectly or are good-looking or have great abilities. He uses everyday people like you and me because he wants to show his power, not ours. He uses us. Now, is he using you? And what is keeping him from using you? Is it your disobedience? Or don't you believe that God can use you at all? God is about using the broken and the beaten, those who know all too well how bad they are in the need of a Savior. He wants to do the extraordinary through the ordinary. That's what's amazing about the apostles. It's not that they were so gifted, dynamic speakers, dressed the best, had nice clothes or lots of money. Later in the series, we're going to be in Acts 4, and where we see this boldness of Peter and John. And the Bible tells us that their boldness resulted in them being brought before the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And the leaders were astounded. And I'll let Luke finish the description in Acts 4, 13, where he says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Meaning that it's God that transforms. If you're seeking to be with Jesus, God will use you. To transform other people. God lo- is all about the using the ordinary, the everyday, the people that are going about their tasks, about their jobs, about their marriages, about raising their children, about paying the bills. He uses all the ordinary to do the extraordinary. We have to remember that as we're keeping our eye on God. That's what he's doing here. He's using this ordinary people, and they're astounded. These guys, come on, these guys are speaking all these different languages. Come on. How do they know my language? And can you imagine the, the, what was going on? I don't know if you've ever been in a room where everyone's speaking a different language. Uh, when I was in India, I was at this conference, and, and again, there were like 1,600 pastors there, and they're divided by state. And every state speaks their own language. The, inter- the, the language of the whole country is Hindi, uh, and then the, the international language is English, but every state has their own language. And, and people don't move states very often in India like we do here because of the language issues. But they would have this night where they all came in and, uh, in the auditorium, and they were celebrating what God was doing, and they would march by state with their sign, and they'd be speaking all their own languages. 
And you imagine you're sitting in a room, and everybody's speaking all these different languages, and suddenly you hear your language being spoken. And you're trying to find that person out, and it's like, how did, how did that person learn my language? That's phenomenal. God is using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. How could you know my language? Come on. I mean, it's imagining, and let's say that someone is from a, a really poor, uneducated area of the United States, and then you're looking at him, and they're speaking Mandarin. <laughs> That's what's going on. And the Chinese are going, wait a minute, how do you know Mandarin? Or they're speaking fluent Japanese. I, I don't get it. How is that happening? It's God's doing it because he uses the ordinary when they submit to him and they wait on him to do the extraordinary. That's what he does when we seek to follow him. Now, let's look back at our passage in verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parth- Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya. This is around the known world at that time to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Uh, Jews are those who were born Jews. A proselyte is someone who converted to Judaism and they went under, underwent full circumcision. Those who didn't undergo full circumcision were called God-fearers. So these are the three different categories that are there. He says, even Cretans and Arab Arabians. I mean, a, a Cretan was someone, that was a, a term that was very derogatory. It's saying, even Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. He's talking about the Jews who had been scattered all over the known world in what was known as the diaspora, is that they would be conquered and they would run these people out to different parts of the world. They would settle down, but these people would make their way back and they're now living in Jerusalem. This is still going on today, by the way is that since the nation of Israel became a country in 1948, they offered what's called Aliyah, meaning that if you, have, if you were one-quarter Jewish, meaning you had one grandparent that was Jewish, they will fly you back and allow you to be a citizen of Israel. And so when I was in Israel, you saw all these different cultures and different backgrounds, different skin colors, because they'd married in the different cultures in which they found themselves. Same picture going on here. These people are all speaking different languages, but they all share the same faith. Remember, and remember, they're all Jewish, because the first part of the book of Acts is talking about how God's working among the Jews. The second part of the book of Acts is how God is extending it to the Gentiles, which is us. Phenomenal stuff going on here. And he's saying here that I am uniting this group of people from all their different backgrounds into one body. But he's saying here, like Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the unbeliever, the Gentile. Not unbeliever, excuse me, Gentile. And he's saying that I'm uniting this group into one body. Into one body. That's the second little point there. Letter B in your notes. He's uniting us into one body. That's what reversing Babel means. That he's inviting us, all of our backgrounds, all of our issues, all of our language into one people. And that's one of the things that we try to treasure here at VBC. Crossing cultural barriers for the sake of the gospel striving to be a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church where all who come here from every single background imaginable is a valued part of God's church. It's going to be hard. And it was hard in the early church, and it's hard today. But through Christ, as we put aside our preferences, it is totally possible. And we also need to see here, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly as we're running out of time. We also need to see that he is utilizing all of our language for his glory. He's utilizing all of our languages for his glory. 
Look at verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See, not, long, not one language is better than another. And God supernaturally was showing his presence among his people. But by speaking in their language, he's showing that God values all languages and we're not to make people conform to one language. This is why, by the way, we advocate for Bible translation and getting the Bible into people's heart languages. Because we want to see the scripture translated to every single tribe and tongue in the world. I was looking up this stat the other day. As of September 2016, the last time that data was available, about a year ago, the full Bible has been translated into how many languages? Anybody want to guess? 636 languages. The entire Bible. The New Testament alone has been translated into 1,442 languages and Bible portions or stories into 1,145 other languages. And there are still thousands of languages that are yet to hear the message of who Jesus is, and that people need to go and translate it into their language. Now, when God does a work like this in a person's life or in a church, there will be many reactions to the Spirit's work. Many reactions to the Spirit's work. Look at verse 12. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? First of all, they're amazed. See, do we see his work as marvelous? It's amazing. What God is doing, as I see it in person's life, that's totally awesome, God. I'm so great at what you're doing here. Now, I hope that's how we are, but I think most of us are not that way. When we see God's work in someone's life, we hear about someone saying, you know what, I'm selling everything. I'm going over to seas to do missions, or I'm going to give this up and do that. Some of us are like, whoa, 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 hold on. We don't see that as marvelous. That, that causes us to get nervous because it's encroaching too, little, too much on our own lives to make us a little uncomfortable. But here we see not only that it was, some thought it was marvelous and they were amazed at what God was doing. They're all behind it. You see others who were perplexed, which means they were stupefied. They were totally at a loss what it meant. Or do we see God's work in our lives as mystifying? I don't get it. I just don't understand. It's a mystery. Okay, that's fine. But we don't give it credit to God. We're like, okay, that's neat, but let's skip over that and go on to something else. That's not how we're supposed to receive it. We're supposed to see it as marvelous, but the reality is, is most of us do what we see in verse 13. But others mocking said they're filled with new wine. They had to find an excuse. Is the Spirit's work marvelous, mystifying, or do we mock it? Do we mock it? They didn't believe God could do such a work, so they decided to make fun of it. They had to find an alternative. Rather than marvel or be content with simply questioning it, they decided to mock God's work and attributed their speaking in tongues as them as drunk or on a new harvest wine. One of the greatest stories I ever heard of someone mocking the truth of God and God intervening was a guy named George Whitfield. George, George Whitfield was a, a preacher in the 18th century. He was a dynamic guy. He was a British guy. He was speaking into the colonies, um, and he was going back and forth. He wore the, the white little, you know, the headdress that they wore back in those days. You know what I'm talking about? During the colonial era, they would wear these wigs. He would wear that and wear this big black robe, and he preached outside. Now, we might not think that's a big deal, but back then, only preaching occurred was in church. They never preached outside. So he would go preach outside, and he was so dynamic and so just amazing that he would gather a crowd of 10,000 people before 10 a.m. Now think about that. 10,000 people in the 1700s, meaning that they heard he was going to be there. They had to take some time. They just couldn't get in their car and drive. They had to make their way to there to hear him speak. But when you draw a crowd like that, you're going to draw people that mock it. I mean, he had some pretty big fans, by the way. One of them was Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin actually said after hearing George Whitfield that he was one of the greatest speakers that he ever heard in his life. And he said when, 
when Whitfield died, Franklin said his one prayer wasn't realized, I never was converted. Interesting. These figures, how they interacted. But he heard it was the greatest order of his day. And there was this crowd that was drawn on the side after Whitfield, without any, by the way, amplification, is preaching to 10,000 people. But there, there was this guy on the side who would hear everything that he, Whitfield was saying, and he would mock it. He would repeat it. And he'd be all dramatic in what he would do. And, he would, he, and his buddies were laughing and carrying on as he's making fun of Whitfield. And in one moment, though, he repeats something that Whitfield said. It hit him so hard that the Spirit of God hit him right here. And he surrendered his life to Jesus right on the spot. He went from seeing it from mocking to it being marvelous in a moment. Because God's Word is powerful. Now, when you see the Spirit at work, I mean, do you see the Spirit at work in your life right now? How do you see him? What is he doing? Is he changing you? Is he convicting you? Are you listening to him? You know, it says we can quench the spirit. We can quench him by our disobedience and not listening to him. And a failure to listen, after a while, it just becomes white noise. It's like one of those car alarms that goes off over and over and over again, and it meant nothing for the longest time, so you just don't hear it anymore. But it's really saying that something's seriously wrong. Are you listening to the spirit of God? Are you just questioning it? Are you fine just staying right where you're at? Or are you mocking it at what's going on in in your life? And you may not be mocking it verbally, but you're mocking it by your actions in your life. If we're going to see ourselves as this fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then we need to see God's work at our lives. We need to see His work as marvelous. Surrender to it that that we might be changed and transformed for the glory of His name. So we have to listen to God's Spirit convicting us. Are we, are we listening? Are we ready to respond? To be a part of this fellowship of the Spirit, ready to make His name known in every single sphere of our lives for the glory of His name. If that's the case, then I would encourage you to just pray and ask God, offer up yourself to Him, surrender yourself to Him, and He will change and transform you from the inside out. That He will save you, but you have to believe in Him first. Some people want the Spirit, but they don't want the Savior. If you want the Spirit, you have to have the Savior first and believe what Jesus did on the cross for your sins, that He died for you, that all of the evil that you did, He knew and He still willingly took all of your sins upon Himself on the cross that you might be saved. And then He gives His Spirit to help you live the life that He wants you to live for the glory of His name.